0: Alright, good morning. Thanks band, and uh, good morning again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, welcome to the most popular service uh, during Daylight Savings Time. There's just a few more people at second service. So hopefully you enjoyed that extra hour of sleep. Uh, And we are right now in a sermon series, short one, as we prepare for Easter, which is coming up in just a few weeks. We're going to be preaching uh, six different sermons in the Gospel of Luke. So Luke was one of uh, the four, uh, writers of the biography of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be looking at six different passages as we prepare and lead up towards, uh, Easter, which is coming up in just a few weeks. Uh, we started last week. This week, we're going to be looking at another parable, a parable that we are calling the parable of the hero and the scumbag. And right now you're picturing two different types of people right now. And we'll, uh, See if that matches up with how the, how the parable goes here. Um, so parables are essentially stories that Jesus tells that uh, he's using to try to teach some truth. Some, some truth about his kingdom, some truth about the gospel, about salvation. And so uh, even though Jesus was a, a real person, he was God incarnate, God that uh, took on human flesh, he actually really did live. And uh, what Luke is describing is Jesus really telling a story that's happened in history, yet the parable itself is a made-up story. It's a story that, you know, the characters in this parable are not real people, but Jesus is using this to uh, shock his listeners, to to teach them something really important, and a parable is going to be a great way to do it. So we're going to be reading uh, in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Feel free to follow along in your Bibles or phones or up here on the screen. Starting in verse 9, Jesus also told this parable. Two men, up, uh, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the context of our parable would be obviously very known to the people that Jesus is teaching this to in in the first century. And some of these words and uh, ideas are a little foreign to us, so let me unpack them a little bit, help us set the scene before we begin to understand what Jesus is teaching here. So the first uh, thing is, is we see two men, going up to the temple to pray. And there's a Pharisee and a tax collector. So the Pharisee is the hero in this story. So a Pharisee was a, a religious ruler. Um, he was a part of the cultural Jewish elite. He was an influencer. He was important. He was a good guy. He, he was the guy that uh, everyone wanted their little boys to grow up and become. The Pharisee is the, the hero of our story. He's the best of the best. And, and we see in, in the Pharisees' prayer, we see him describe himself. He's a guy who uh, isn't greedy. He's not an extortioner. He's not trying to get rich. He's a, a, a just man. He's not abusing people. He's not uh, full of injustice in how he deals with people and does business. And he's a faithful husband. He's not cheating on his wife. He, he loves his wife. He doesn't take advantage of poor people or, or use them for selfish gain. Uh, and he's even um, quite generous, giving up and donating a tenth of his money uh, of all that he earns. And he has self-control. He denies himself food and he fasts multiple times every week. In fact, he's, he's such a good person that he doesn't just follow the law. He doesn't just do what he's supposed to do. He even goes beyond what the law requires. And he gives more and fasts more and is, is not just not a bad person, but he's also a good person. So the, the Pharisee is the hero of our her story. The second guy that Jesus has in his parable is a tax collector. So this guy is the scumbag. This guy is the lowest of the low. People hate Pharisees. Essentially, he's, he's an IRS agent. If the IRS was a, another nation that is oppressing our nation and, and uh, ruling our nation, and he uses his power... To steal other people's money so that he can get rich. So in in first century culture, this tax collector, New Testament culture, uh, tax collectors are considered thieves. They, They take people's money and they have the Roman power behind them to be able to do that and get away with it. They're also traitors to their very own people. So the Jewish people are right now being occupied and oppressed and ruled, not by themselves, but by Rome. And so Rome comes in and says, here... Why don't you be one of our tax collectors? We'll make you really rich, but you have to betray your own people, you have to take their money, and you have to give it to the occupying, oppressive culture, Rome. So not only are tax collectors thieves and greedy people, they're also traitors to their own people. And if you know much about the New Testament, in lists of different types of sinners, tax collectors are often in there. And even the tax collector realizes that he's a sinner. He realizes that he's a scumbag. He realizes that uh, he doesn't have any friends and that uh, before God, he's guilty and a bad guy, right? He, he, he stands far back. He doesn't even lift up his eyes. He knows that he, that he cannot move near a holy God because of his evil heart and his past and everything that he's done. He's distant from people, as well, he stands far off by himself, and he knows that God owes him nothing. And so he just pleads with God for mercy because he knows that he cannot say, Hey, God, remember, you promised you'd give me this. He doesn't even have that. He just falls on his face and pleads for mercy. And these two guys are going up to the temple. So we don't have a temple right now in, in our faith uh, like they did back then. But at this time in history, the temple was the, the literal, physical place where God's present. Uh, presence dwelled here on earth. So God's presence literally was inside a part of the temple. So uh, people, as they wanted to approach God, they would move towards the temple and they would use the temple to do things like pray and offer sacrifices. So that's, that's the context of what's going on. But even as I describe that, we're still probably not feeling as strongly as the initial listeners of this parable would have felt. So let's just talk about who if if this if Jesus was telling this parable today, who would these people be? So in our context, let's talk about the Pharisee. The Pharisee, if he lived today, this is the type of person he would be. He would be a CEO of a nonprofit, a nonprofit that uses all of its power and influence to fight against racism and poverty. He would be a CEO that pays every single one of his uh, employees at least $100,000, showing that he is not greedy at all, but very generous. He would use a social media platform to promote how to be your best self and how to be a better person. He would be transparent and public about all of his own uh, personal challenges in his own life, trying to get us to to follow along. He would have a great marriage and deeply love his wife. And not only that, but he would fast uh, in solidarity with the poor multiple times a week, and he would donate 10% of his personal wealth. Um, so people would just know. So a guy that all of us would, th- you know, if we knew him as a friend or just knew of him, would think, wow, he's, he's a pretty great guy. He's actually doing every good thing that we think a person should be doing. Not only is he not bad, he's not doing bad things, but with all of his time and energy and resources and influence, he is doing good things. So that's the Pharisee. That's, that's a hero in our story. Whereas a tax collector, again, he's a scumbag. He is, think, think the worst of the worst, right now. Picture in your mind uh, who you think is the worst person in the world right now, or someone you think is worthy of disgust and and you know someone you just cannot stand. That's what the t- tax collector was—a person who everyone despised. The, the 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 type of person that, in order to get rich, like sold secrets to, to Russia so that Russia could. Uh, ruin our election or or he works for the unjust evil corporation that's just taking advantage of people taking poor people's money and he's doing so just to get rich so betraying his own people his own uh, extended family his own ethnicity his own nation in order for himself to get rich so remember when you think a tax collector think traitor think thief think oppressor of his own people think greedy at, at, at uh, the cost of, of, of hurting and abusing other people. That's who this tax collector is. So that's how Jesus starts his parable. This is, this is what the first uh, listeners would have heard as they understand who these two types of people are. And then Jesus continues his parable. He says, this is how they act. So as they go to the temple to pray, as they approach a holy God, this is their posture Uh, towards God. And we read in the next few verses. uh, Verse 11 says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So here in their postures, we see in the Pharisee, we see someone who's very self-righteous, right? Both inside and outside, he is a righteous guy. He is a good guy. He's a moral guy. And he knows that. He is prideful. He uh, waves the flag of, I'm a good person, and he's not ashamed of that. He's very self-reliant, right? Because he knows, hey, I, by myself, with my hard work and my grit, my determination, and my self-control, can be a really good person. And I am. And I'm going to... Flaunt that. I'm going to be okay with that. And he has feelings of superiority. Because he's so good, because he's accomplished so much, because he's so moral, he feels superior to other people, people that are different than him. So here in Jesus' parable, the hero stands with his chest inflated, stands all by himself, showing his self-reliance. He doesn't need anyone. And in his faux prayer, He thanks God for how good of a person he is, and he compares himself to the worst of the worst. He compares himself to other villains of his day and thanks God that he's such a good person, that he's not evil. He thanks God that he's not a loser, and then he continues to describe all of his great accomplishments and good deeds. He's generous. He's self-controlled. He's a good, righteous person. And in stark contrast, in the very opposite what does the tax collector do what is his posture as he approaches the temple as he approaches god he is humbled he is broken he is repentant he knows his place right just just like think of like a dog who has chewed up his owner's shoe doesn't even look up at the owner when he gets confronted. He keeps his face on the ground because he knows his place. He knows he's guilty. He knows his wrong. he is wrong. The tax collector does the same. He doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but rather keeps his eyes down. He, he stands far off from God because he knows he has no right to approach a holy God. He knows he's, he's evil, and he knows his past and what he's done, and he knows his heart. And so he beats his chest publicly and physically to show his remorse and his lament, and he's repented. He's turning from his sins. He's humbling himself. He's he's literally at the end of his rope. He has nothing to hope for except that God is a merciful God. He knows that God is a God of justice, but also a God of mercy. He knows that for thousands of years, God has through the sacrificial system, created a way for scumbags to come near a holy God by sacrificing an innocent animal. And so he has nothing except to just plead, God, have mercy on me. I know you're just, but I also know that you're merciful. I have nothing to offer you, but please have mercy on me, a sinner. These two men couldn't approach God in in different or opposite manners. Yet here's the twist. And as you can guess, Jesus, you know, a massive uh, or a phenomenal storyteller adds a twist to the story. And so I didn't read uh, all of verse 9, the very first verse that starts this parable. Often when you read the first verse before a parable or the first verse of a parable, it tells you the, the context. It tells you who he's speaking to. Sometimes it even interprets the parable for you. But the very first verse says, Jesus also told this parable, to who? Who who are the people that Jesus wanted to hear this parable? He tells this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Jesus told this parable to people who said, I'm going to rely on myself with my hard work and determination and self-control. I can be righteous. Jesus told this parable to those types of people specifically. And it says, because They trusted in in themselves that they were righteous. Because of that, they treated others with contempt. The type of people that know, hey, I can work really hard. I can look good on the outside. I can follow the rules. And because I know that, I'm kind of disgusted by all you suckers out there that can't do that. I I look at contempt towards you. I have hatred in my heart against you. I can't stand you. Those are the type of, of people that are the audience of this story. Jesus wants those people to hear this parable jesus is speaking to people who are self-righteous who think they're impressive they're good and worthy of god respecting them jesus is speaking to the heroes jesus is speaking to the good people the moral the self-confident and because they are moral self-confident and the heroes the good people of society they look down on others they despise those who aren't as good as them. They have feelings of superiority. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's human nature. If we're honest with ourselves, you know, maybe we want to raise our hands right now and say, yep, that's me, I'm one of those guys. But if we're honest, that's human nature, right? If we feel good about ourselves in some area of our life, we look down on those who are not like that. If we, have, if we think our high standing is due to our own education, our own hard work, our own determination, our own fill-in-the-blank, us being more woke or more enlightened than others, us having better jobs, us having uh, less vices, then how can we help but not look down on those who aren't that? Those who haven't worked as as hard, those who don't have as good of morals as us, those who are ignorant or foolish or lazy. and We could go on and on. When we think we are better than others, we'll look at them with contempt. When we think we're smarter or cooler or better or wiser or better citizens or have a better lifestyle, we will see others that aren't like us with disdain and disrespect. So Jesus is telling this specific parable to a specific group of people. Jesus tells this parable to people who, like the Pharisee, look down and have contempt on everyone who's not as good as them. The audience of this parable are people who love the hero. The audience of this parable are people who think that they are the hero of this story. And like I said, Jesus is a master storyteller. And after he sets the stage, makes them rooting for the Pharisee and, and, and be disgusted with this, this scumbag of a tax collector, Jesus brings a twist he says in verse 14, this is how Jesus sends his parable. I tell you though, this man, the scumbag that repented, that said, have mercy on me, God is sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So who leaves this encounter at the, at the temple innocent? Who leaves having a new identity? Who leaves being forgiven and loved and different, and given Jesus's righteousness, given innocence, not the hero, not the Pharisee, but the scumbag. The scumbag becomes the hero, and the hero, the villain. As Jesus ends, speaking about his kingdom, about his gospel, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus blows the mind of the audience. He says, you think the CEO that does all this great work and is so selfless, he's the hero and he leaves this encounter with God being applauded by God saying, oh, this guy's the greatest. But actually he doesn't. He leaves guilty. He leaves outside of the kingdom. He leaves humbled, brought low. Whereas the scumbag, the worst of the worst, because He repented because he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because he turned from his ways and put all of his hope in Jesus, that guy is the guy who leaves justified. Jesus teaches us his kingdom it's the villains who humble themselves that will be forgiven, and it's the self righteous, independent, conceited heroes who don't get in. And that is the gospel in this parable. The good news that Jesus brought. It's good news not to the Pharisee types. It's good news to the sinners. It's good news to the tax collectors. It's good news to the sick. It's good news to those who know that they are imperfect and those who need a Savior. So how does this work, right? Even if you're not a Christian here today, you probably know God is supposed to be good, right? And if God is good, he should not let bad guys go away free. If God's a good, just judge then that means bad guys should get punished evil should get punished right so how does this work how does the guilty become innocent right jesus ends his parable by saying the guilty scumbag leaves justified he leaves righteous he leaves declared innocent he leaves with his sins forgiven his debt paid so how does this work how does the villain get cleared how does the scumbag end uh, end this parable by having a new identity how does the tax collector become justified? He does so because he humbled himself. Just like Jesus ends his parable. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. He's at the end of his rope, he has no other hope, but he throws himself at God's mercy. He doesn't say, I will do, I will do 1%. He doesn't say, uh, this is what I've done for you. He just pleads for mercy. He repents of his sin. So, this word repentance means uh, doing a 180 degree turn. He turns from worshiping his, himself, he turns from uh, divulging into sin, he turns fully and turns his back on his sin and on himself and fully worships and throws himself at the mercy of God. And kind of like we sang earlier in the song, repentance looks like lamenting our sin, it looks like being broken because we know. our our sinful hearts and our our broken pasts, and we know what, what evil lurks within us. And we deplore that about ourselves. And we turn from that and ask God to have mercy on us and to change us. In our story, the text collector, he knew he was a sinner. He knew he needed a Savior. He knew he needed forgiveness. And so he put his hope in the mercy of God. To answer this question, how does the guilty become justified? How does, the, how does the tax collector become innocent and forgiven? We're going to look at Acts 13. So fast forward in, in the Bible a little bit. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he sends out his disciples to preach this good news, this gospel, this, the, the meaning of this parable to everyone who will hear. And in that, here we pick up this little section from one of the sermons from the early church that helps us understand this. Acts 13 says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sin is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified under the law of Moses. So the first thing they say, the way that you become justified, the way that you become made righteous, declared innocent, forgiven, is through Faith in this man is through faith in Jesus Christ. Not faith in your own hard work or your own past or your own righteous or good deeds, but your faith fully in Jesus Christ. And they even go on to say, uh, you're justified, you're freed from things that even the good law, even the sacrificial system couldn't give you. I mean, in some ways it kind of could. You could sacrifice an animal and your, your sins for a while could be forgiven. But let's say this tax collector did offer a sacrifice in the temple. How many sacrifices was enough? Okay? Maybe like as the, you know, the innocent dove's head was getting cut off, he was declared righteous for a second, but then what happens when the tax collector's evil heart rears its head again? Or what happens when he goes back to his job as an extortionist, as a thief, as a traitor to his own people? So in, in, in some ways... Even the sacrificial system and the law could not justify people. And the the preacher here in Acts 13 is saying, reminding them that everyone who believes in Jesus is justified through him. Through everything that you could not be justified through the law of the Moses. Something even better is here. A justification, a forgiveness, a, a being declared innocent and righteous like never before is here. And it comes through faith in Jesus. Another New Testament passage that helps us understand this, uh, 1 John 1, 8-10, so much great stuff in here. It says, if we say we have no sin, if we say we're sinless, if we say we're perfect, if we say we're good, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right? Speaking to the Pharisee, the person that says, I am good, there's nothing wrong with me, I only do good First John says, if you say you have no sin, you're lying to yourself. You're fooling yourself. You're deceiving yourself. There's no truth in you if you say you are without sin. If we confess our sin, though, God is faithful. God is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. If we say we are without sin, Pharisee, that's standing there saying, God, be impressed with me. I'm the hero of the story. Look at what I've done. Look what I haven't done. Aren't you proud of me? If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. But not only does this First John passage say that, but in the middle it reminds us, if we confess our sins, like the tax collector, if we say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, what does it say? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful. He promises that if we repent of our sin, if we confess our sin, he will forgive us. He's faithful. That will happen no matter what. That is a promise. There is no sin too great that Jesus cannot forgive it. He is faithful to forgive our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to move us from being scumbags to washed and perfected innocent sons and daughters. But he's not just faithful, he's also just. It's also good, it's also not injustice for him to forgive us. So what does that mean? The Pharisee and the hero in this story, uh, if, if, if you noticed, he actually didn't pray in this parable. I mean, it kind of was a prayer, but not really. He just said, God, look at me. Look at me. I have no sin. You should be impressed. He doesn't confess sin. He doesn't ask for God's help. He doesn't even worship God through his prayer. He doesn't think he has any sin. He doesn't think he really has a need for God. And that's the warning for most of us here today. We're tempted to call God a liar by thinking, I'm actually pretty good. I'm not really a sinner. And of course, we're not saying, when when we say everyone's a sinner, when the Bible says everyone is a sinner, right? If we say we have no sin, we're not saying that, you know, you are as evil as the most evil people in the world. We're not saying that. But the New Testament, what Jesus is saying here is that we are all slaves to sin. We are all bound by sin. It's wrapped around our DNA. It's in our hearts. It's in our minds. We cannot run from it. We eventually will fall into it. We, we cannot stop sinning. So yes, you might be, you know, if we grade it on a curve, you might even be in the top one percent, but you are still not without sin. You are still not without evil motivations and an impure heart and a past full of misdeeds and a future of, of, of that as well. And so this is the warning for most of us here today. Most in this room, not everyone, but I would guess most in this room came this morning feeling more like the Pharisee than like the scumbag. Not everyone, but I would guess most in this room came in not thinking, I'm the worst person in the world. I will not even raise my eyes to look at anyone. I'm going to stand in the back of the sanctuary on my knees, beating my chest, And then the only thing I can hope for is saying, God have mercy on me. Most people probably did not come feeling like that. Most of us are probably tempted to resonate with the Pharisee by saying, God, have you seen my neighbors? Have you seen my colleagues? Have you seen the people in my city or in the nation? They are a mess. Thank you, God, that I am not like those other people. And when we do that, we have contempt in our hearts. We have hatred for other people. We become self-righteous. And so that is our great warning here in our passage for most of us here today. We think we're the good guys. We think that we're the good guys, but apart from Christ, we are most assuredly the tax collector. But today's passage is a needed warning to ourselves and to a self-righteous city and self-righteous generation and self-righteous culture and nation. We need to stop deceiving ourselves into thinking that we don't need a Savior, that we don't need a rescuer, that we don't need forgiveness. In our self-reliance, moral arrogance, and independence, what does 1 John say? We're calling God a liar if we think we're okay apart from Jesus Christ. Remember, this is how Jesus' parable ends. This is how his parable ends. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The worst of the worst was received. The worst of the worst was forgiven because he repented and believed. But the good guy did not leave justified. The good guy left guilty. For whoever uh, exalts himself will be humbled, Jesus sends his parable with, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So speaking of this 1 John 1, 8 passage, Jen Wilkin hits on the justice part. She says, uh, so this verse right here, she says, This uh, is why the Bible reminds us that if we confess our sins, God is not only faithful to forgive our sins, which he is, but he's also just. Because Christ was punished in our place, God would be unjust to punish us for a sin that has already received its recompense. The need for excuses for self-justification is removed. We are justified before God in Christ. And so this reminds us, this First uh, first John passage, as well as Jen, uh, who's an author and Bible teacher, reminds us that God is just to forgive us. If you're a Christian here today, or if you become one today, if you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus takes the penalty that you and I, all of us deserve for our sin. He pays that. So God is just in forgiving you, right? Because you might be wondering, okay, how God is to judge if the evil scumbag extortioner Uh, thief who betrays his his own people how does he leave innocent he didn't do anything he deserves death he deserves life in prison how does he leave innocent and the answer is because he trusts in the gospel because he trusts in jesus jesus himself took on all the punishment that that tax collector deserved and that same offer is for you here today if you're a christian that is true god is just to forgive you christian Because Jesus paid for your sins. He paid the penalty. He paid the debt. As we just sang, the wrath of God was satisfied on Jesus on the cross. So, when we talk about this, to be very clear, Christians value justice. God is a God of justice. We're not saying here that, hey, You know, go out and do evil things and then you just pray this kind of magical incantation and then you get out of of jail free card. We're not saying that. Christians believe in justice. Christians highly value justice. Our God is a God of justice, right? He is against evil. He is against extortioners and people who abuse others and people who hurt others. He is a God of justice. So we as Christians, we desire and pray that wrongs will be made right and that evil will be punished. Elise Fitzpatrick writes about this. She says, Our hatred of injustice is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. Humans are created in God's image. That means we should resemble him. And one of the small ways that that plays out is that God is a God of justice. And so when we care about justice, we're resembling our God. Yet Christians are not only people of justice, even though we highly value justice. Christians are not only people of justice but we're also people of mercy and grace, because that's our story, right? If Christians here, we we have uh, our lives have been changed. We've been given hope. We've been given new life, eternal life, a new identity, because God didn't just have justice towards us, but He also had mercy and grace. It is at the cross where God's justice and His mercy and grace kiss. It's the place where we see evil punished and also sinners forgiven, which is scandalous. Jesus takes the penalty for the sins of all of us scumbags, all of us villains. He takes the punishment onto himself and he gifts us his innocence. He says, I'll take your, your, your life in prison. I'll take your execution. I'll take your firing squad and I'll give you my innocence. I will give you my purity. I will give you my righteousness. If you just repent and put your faith in me. And that's the scandal of the gospel. That's what floored and and offended the first listeners and many of us here in this room. The good news of Jesus is, is scandalous. That scumbags, the worst of the worst, get forgiven and declared innocent while the heroes and the good guys don't. As Jesus said at the end of his parable here, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves before God will be exalted. Grace, not works. Mercy, not condemnation. We see this idea of God being against the proud everywhere, all throughout the Bible the New Testament, we read James, quoting the Old Testament, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposed the Pharisee that came to him proud. God opposed that. He stiff-armed that. He said, don't come to me with your, your works of righteousness that are done with sinful and pure motivations, thinking you don't need me. But to those that humble themselves, God promises grace. God gives grace to the humble. Grace upon grace. Mercy upon mercy. So to be very clear here, what we are talking about when we talk about repentance, or so the New Testament teaches on repentance. Repentance does not mean just saying some magical words and, and uh, getting your, your slate just wiped clean. You can kind of go do whatever you want. Think about this. Think about a husband and wife Let's say they just got married and the husband looks at the wife and he says, I promise that no matter what, no matter what, I will always forgive you. I will always welcome you back. There's nothing that you could do that would keep me from fully loving you, fully forgiving you, always welcoming you back. Now, if the wife understood and received that husband's love, right, she would want to return it. She would be changed by it. But if she heard her husband's love and how he described it right there and thought, ooh, you know what that means? That means I can steal all of his money. I can run away. I can have multiple affairs. Right? We would say, no, she doesn't get his love at all. And that's the same thing with what we're talking about here. Cheap grace, a theological term that we sometimes say, cheap grace is that. It's saying, ooh, I get a get-out-of-jail-free card if I just say this phrase, "Uh, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now I can go do whatever I want. Right? The Bible, the New Testament, Romans 6 says, you, you don't understand the gospel if that's your first thought is, what, what, what can I get away with now? Or I already got a clean slate. I got to get out of jail free card. I have immunity so I can do whatever I want. Right? It's like the, it's like the bride who says, ooh, he'll always forgive me. I'll go do whatever I want. That's cheap grace. That's, that's not true repentance. But rather true repentance is, like we saw in our passage today, humility, brokenness, lamenting over our sin, deploring our revolt against God, weeping because we, we truly see how we have offended our, our Creator and how much He loves us, turning a 180 from worshiping ourselves and our sin to God. And I want to tell you, all of us in this room, whether you're a Christian or not, If we we get this passage, if we understand it, if we believe it, it will literally change our lives. If you're not a Christian here today, understanding this can literally change your eternal life. Jesus is, is telling you today, he's saying, if you repent of your sins and trust in him and not yourself, you'll be given eternal life, life forever, perfect life. You'll be adopted into his family. You'll have a new identity And for those in this room who are believers already, when we understand this passage, it will change the way we we view ourselves. It will change the way we view other people as well. If we truly understand the gospel, which is portrayed in the story here, how can we not be humble, thankful, gracious, and warm people? How can we not? When we believe, receive, and cherish the gospel... How can we then have feelings of superiority and hatred and contempt towards other people? If we see ourselves in the scumbag, then when we see other scumbags in this world, we will say, Oh, but for the grace of God, that could have been me. But if we think we're really good people because of our education, or the family we grew up in, or how smart we are, or how hard we've worked, if we think it's all about us, how can that not lead to feelings of superiority, feelings of, Oh, they're lazy? They're evil people. They're stupid. They're ignorant. But when we truly get this parable, when we truly understand and believe the gospel, it frees us up to, to, to love people unconditionally, to be rid of contempt and hatred in our own hearts. Everywhere in our, in our world, everywhere in our nation, everywhere in our city, this just is not taking place, right? Everyone. Everyone including ourselves in our own sin, even if we are Christians, as we kind of still kind of battle against this everywhere, people think that they're better than others, right? We hate, we have contempt towards, we're disgusted with the people on the other side of the aisle politically, the people on the other side of the debate about the pandemic, the people on the other side of how they view school or government or race or, or uh, nationality or, or laws or... Fill in the blank. Everywhere we slander people that are different than us. We are disgusted by how they act. And sadly, this is not even just a non-Christian thing. I'm actually reading a book about the history of the American church over the past 75 years. And again and again and again, some prominent leaders that have microphones and television stations and uh, book contracts aren't getting this parable. So it's even in the church. They're saying, and it's sad to say, but throughout history, we're seeing some Christian leaders say, they're the enemies out there, whether it's the communists or the Russians or the feminists or the, or the gay people or the, or the Muslims, fill in the blank. Every, every decade, there was a new villain that the church, some, of the, some Christians fought against. And they said, the way we win is by battling them instead of saying, no, we are trying to win them for Christ. We would be just like them if it wasn't for the grace of God. My justification is not based on what family I grew up in, or how hard I worked, or how good of a person I am. And when we get that, when we get that, all feelings of superiority, of self-righteousness, of pride, begin to go away. And of course, I'm not saying if you're a Christian here today and You have a feeling of of contempt towards someone that you just lost your salvation. I'm not saying that at all, but where else in the world do people truly empathize and love people that are completely different than them? Where else in the world do you get a cleanse from uh, contempt and hatredness and superiority? Right? Do we have doctors that can do this? Do we have, I mean, where else can we get this except for the gospel? which we see here described in Jesus' parable. It is only the gospel, understanding that we are the tax collector. Apart from Jesus, we are all the tax collector. Repenting of our sin and putting our full trust in the mercy of God and being justified on his son's work on the cross, it's only when we believe that and understand that can we truly be free from the prison of self-righteousness and having contempt for those who are different than us we really believe that we're the scumbag in the story, at least in our essence or like in our total depravity or like apart from God's grace in our lives, we would be the villain. When we get that, when we understand that, feelings of superiority and disgust towards people begin to go away. Hatred towards those who are different begins to go away. We moved with compassion towards the worst of the worst, because we say Jesus loves them too. Jesus died for them too. But by the grace of God, my sinful heart would have led to something similar. Maybe even that particular sin. Or another way to say it, what's the solution to hearts filled with hatred and violence and self-righteousness and racism and arrogance and sexism or any other type of feelings of superiority? What's the solution to that? What's the only thing that can truly change that in a person from the inside out, it's the gospel. The New Testament describes, you know, in many powerful, beautiful, profound ways what Jesus did for us. Philippians 2 uses similar language to our parable today. Describing Jesus, it says, and being found in human form. So Jesus, who is fully God, he he took on human form. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by being obedient To the Father's plan, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It's like Jesus ended his parable those who humble themselves, God will exalt. And that's what happened here, happened with our Savior. Because Jesus first did this for us, we can actually, if if we trust in that, actually, earlier in this passage, it says, this, this same mind that allowed Jesus to humble himself, to, to die and love others, at the beginning of this passage says, this mind is yours in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're, you're given the Holy Spirit, you become a new creation, you actually have the same mind of Christ within you that makes this actually possible. You humbling yourselves and, and, and loving even your enemies, even people that you would naturally have contempt towards and feel disgusted by because Jesus first did this for us, we can now have this same mind in us, the same attitude. Apart from that, what makes you not racist, not feeling superior, not being sexist, not having contempt towards people? Um, maybe shame. Maybe like peer pressure. Maybe you just hating that you have those feelings inside of you. But do any of those things actually change your heart? Does society saying, if you do this, we will cancel you, does that really change your heart? Does you... You know, just being embarrassed that you have feelings of superiority towards others. Does that shame actually change your heart and remove that from your heart for forever? No. But through the gospel, we can. Through throwing our feet at God and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner God's faithful and just. He will forgive us again and again and again. He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He will give us a new heart. He will make us like his son, Through the gospel, we are remade people. We're given new hearts. We're gifted Jesus' motivations. We're given the Holy Spirit who gives us power to truly humble ourselves. So whether you're a Christian here today, that's your story. That's something we need to remember and tell each other over and over again. We default to to being saved and then kind of wanting to go back to being that Pharisee again and saying, okay, God, thanks for saving me, but I'm going to work really hard in ministry or being a good Christian. All, all, all by myself, right? Or maybe you're not a Christian yet here today. This is what Jesus offers you. He, he's really clear on what he offers you. He's, he's really clear on holding up the mirror and saying, yes, by yourself you are incomplete. By yourself you need something. By yourself you are hopeless to save yourself. But Jesus doesn't let you stay there. He says, I love you. I'll even die for you to fix all your problems. All you have to do is just... Admit that you need me. Tell me you want me. Turn from worshiping yourself and turn to me. And he promises life and salvation, both here in this life and for eternity. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these these great, great words uh, here in this parable. Thank you that we live on this side of the cross and resurrection and ascension too, so we can fully understand what this all means and how this plays out and uh, all your goodness towards us in Christ. We pray everyone in this room would believe the truth behind this parable about the gospel, that we are justified, we're forgiven, we're made innocent, we're declared righteous through faith in Jesus, through repenting of our sin, and putting all of our trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Help us to believe that, whether today is the very first day to believe it, or whether we're forgetting it, even though we've believed it for years of our lives. We need help with that. And then out of that, Jesus, please give us fruit. Holy Spirit, fill us and make us the most humble, loving, warm, gentle people. May we see others not as enemies, not as scumbags, not as people who are against us. We need to fight and win and destroy, but as people made in your image that you deeply love and and died for, as, as souls to be won, as people that hopefully will be our future brothers and sisters in the faith. So God, give us love for those who are different than us. Love that's supernatural, that comes from the Spirit, that this this world, this city, even ourselves are, are shocked to see. So give us more of that. We need, we need you in all of this, and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.